With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I know, I don't know how much you know about the history of Ukraine, but about their national anthem is Ukraine has not yet perished. And I always like to add on to it the Ukraine has not yet perished, despite the best efforts of the Russians and the Germans. <laughs> That's very, very true. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this poor country. <laughs> what a horrible adopting, like, oh, we're not dead yet. Like, <laughs> what a terrible national anthem. What a place to start from. been a couple of weeks since we've done one of these and still no sports we are still waiting through civil unrest we are waiting through pandemic we are waiting through 100 degrees in the arctic through murder hornets uh maybe an alien invasion uh and we're not even to november for the election right in time for sweeps so we're just trying to find anything. Uh, if this world lurches to 2021 at this point, I think I will be surprised. But in the meantime, we do have to get weird around here. And we'll be getting weird this week with a pretty strange topic where we don't really have a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and so with me, uh, as always, is Paul Banks. How are you tonight, Paul? <laughs> How's it going? It's um, it's pretty weird, that's for certain. I, I find it strange that, you know, we were supposed to meet up here in about two weeks at Wrigley. Uh, had tickets to the Cubs and Rays on 4th of July weekend. And usually we do meet up around 4th of July weekend. We take any Cubs game at Wrigley with my family and everything. And I just forlornly am looking at that in my phone right now with the Major League Baseball app, and the tickets are still there, and I'm like, oh, well, that, that's not happening. <laughs> I, I, we, there is going to be baseball, because it changes as the cliche goes. It's a very fluid situation. Well, as of tonight, they've announced Major League Baseball is supposed to return by the end of July. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see John Lester taking the bump. I'll believe it when something actually happens. I, I've been led astray too much already. Uh, I, I honestly don't know what to think at this point. I'm. It, it's interesting to see the NHL and NBA and Major League Baseball still trying to hit their date to restart or start by the end of July. But, oh, goodness, it's certainly not trending well right now. Right, because you've got Orlando's NWSL team pulled out because they went to a bar or something and you got 10 positive tests. Not to mention you have 
some of the main stars on the U.S. women's national team were not going to do it anyway. You know, you've got like these red states and these southern states that didn't really lock down. Their numbers are going up. We're not going in the right direction in some certain states. I mean, Florida is very crucial because everything hinges around Orlando. It's really tough to say that we're going to have sports back anytime soon. At this point, it's it's wearying more than anything. It's just I just, I don't know what to think, and I'm like, okay, or so we're just trying to hang on until there's a vaccine that may or may not end everything, and then you have the people that would be like, well, I'm not having the vaccine for. It's just uh, no, I, I didn't I'm, know I'm what we're going to start on that. on the show tonight. <laughs> but speaking of baseball. Uh, we can get to our actual topic tonight, and it is most glorious baseball in Soviet Russia. Yes, as much as I love our intro theme song and our outro theme song, I hope you guys have the rights to... That is a wonderful national anthem, regardless of ideology, regardless of history. I just think, Sayos all right, I'll stop there. It makes me want to roll through Poland. <laughs> I think of just Drago coming out to the ring when I hear that. Oh, absolutely. That or the the Miracle on Ice losers. <laughs> You know, but the losers of history have always had a lot of pride, as we've seen across all civilizations. Oh, God, we're not going to get into that one either. <laughs> yeah, that would go off on a tangent that we're not going to do tonight. But anyway, with baseball returning somewhat officially tonight, why don't we talk some baseball? And it is hard to believe, and people our age may have heard this about 25, 30 years ago and forgotten it, at one time... The Soviet Union, in their waning days, tried to actually start a baseball program, and one of their goals was to take on the United States and actually beat the United States. Right. Their goal was, um, in 1984, 1988, at the Olympics, baseball was a demonstration sport. In 92, it became a medal sport in Barcelona, and... It's really fascinating to see as, and you know, keeping with the Drago, like, I must break you. The whole, um, like, at towards the end of the fight when Rocky was like, you can change, I can change, we can change. There was this movement towards baseball bringing the two cultures together. There was, um, they met in, in Stockholm of all places, and they came together to kind of learn more about the sport. And it was... Okay, you know, we really want to, the Soviets were like, we want to beat the Americans on the diamond, on the field, at a time when um, relations were like, you know, the, the Eastern Bloc was crumbling, the wall was coming down, the Cold War was ending, and baseball was something in which, the, the you know, the class of civilizations found common ground. It was great. And, and it's hard to believe, like, you don't obviously you don't think of the Soviet Union as being a baseball hotbed, and I know Major League Baseball has tried to expand the game as much as they can. I know you had a couple of years ago here there was a player in Indianapolis that eventually had a cup of coffee with the Pirates. His name was Gift and Gope, and he was the first major leaguer born on the continent of Africa. Uh, he was originally from South Africa, so. 
you see that expanding here today, but the idea of a Soviet baseball team in the uh, in the eighties was pretty ludicrous. Yeah, I mean that's what's so funny about it is the idea of you know these two cultures, these two economic systems, these two massive financial and military superpowers, and the national pastime, which you know some historians say is actually based off rounders, the British game. You know, there's baseball, there's roots of baseball that you can trace back to all kinds of stick and ball games that go as far back as ancient Egypt. And with the Soviet Union, they had a game itself called Lapka. Am I right? Uh, that's new to me. I, I did not come across that in my research. Yeah, Lapka. L-A-P-K-A, which was a game with a much larger ball, kind of like softball, and it was played on a pentagon instead of played on a diamond. Like I said, you know, rounders was a British game from the, from the 18th century. Uh, the idea of baseball as, as the national pastime originates with Spalding, Spalding of the, of the sporting goods that, of, you know, that empire. And they, he got together with, with the general, in Cooperstown, uh, Doubleday, and then they created the myth that baseball was founded in America, but there's stick and ball games that go back to every country. And from what I came across, there was even one Soviet historian, and I use the term Soviet historian, you could say propagandist or whatever, <laughs> that traced baseball back to a stick and ball game that goes all the way back to Ivan the Terrible. Oh, good. You know, who are you and I to dispute anything that happened during the Russian era under Ivan the Terrible? I mean, he sounds like a great guy who I'm sure always told the truth. So, Oh, absolutely. It's interesting because you have the Soviet Union was so influential for other countries that were much more successful in baseball. So they had a bit of a bit of a pipeline for coaches. Obviously, the the number one influence would be cuba with their baseball tradition and everything and apparently in the 80s they were working closely with nicaragua to uh get coaching and uh you have another indiana tie here they were working with the nicaragua team that was headed to the pan am games in indianapolis in 1987 which i remember as a kid the pan am games being kind of like the olympics for the western hemisphere and it was a huge deal to have those here yes what i saw in coming across our due diligence for this podcast i saw a couple indianapolis connections so i, I couldn't wait for you to jump on that <laughs> so what were the indie connections that you came across the soviet union and the united states okay this says set three years ago in indianapolis and this is from an L.A. Times article of 1988, so that would put us at 1985, and that does bring together the Nicaraguan connections where they were, the Soviet Union team was playing in just sweatsuits, so they studied the Nicaraguan team to copy their uniforms to develop that. Um, Cuba, where Fidel Castro ha is quoted as saying, we want to make the Soviet Union team competitive enough so that they can beat the United States, but we don't want to help them become good enough so that they can beat us. But the the Soviet Union did, their co their baseball coaches did refer to the United States as the mother country of baseball at this time. So they spent... Bueno, Stalin es el diablo. 
Can I give you the chance to live here in your socialist paradise? <laughs> so Batista's gone. Did you know that? I had no idea. <laughs> well, and in the same Los Angeles Times article, it it's interesting to see that their goal was to be competitive, like you said, by the 92 Olympics in Barcelona, as I believe you're supposed to pronounce it in the original Catalan. You know what? We have to watch ourselves, because if we don't fully recognize the movement for Catalan independence, we could really face a lot of backlash for this podcast among our Catalonia listeners. Well, let's see. How many countries have we managed to piss off tonight so far? We've got the Soviet Union. We now have Catalan or Catalonia, uh, probably Spain somewhere in there. Uh, Cuba, Nicaragua. I don't. I think we were pretty cool with Nicaragua and uh, veiled <laughs> hints at the Confederacy. I mean, we're 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 on a roll right now, aren't we? Yeah, I know. We've got like an anti-United Nations thing going so far. <laughs> So, obviously, that didn't happen because 1992, um, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. But in an interesting piece of pop culture, something did exist involving the, 19, uh, involving the Soviet Union national baseball team in 1992. You have the HBO original movie of The Comrades of Summer starring the one and only Joe Montaigne. Yes, the ultimate bleacher bum. Yeah, he did write Bleacher Bums, the play. Uh, Wrigley Field, seventh inning stretch, staple, Fat Toady himself. <laughs> the Wikipedia page for The Comrades of Summer only has a three-paragraph plot summary. It says, Major League Baseball manager Sparky Smith is fired from his job with the Seattle Mariners. His attitude has gotten him in trouble with George, the owner of the Mariners, and no other teams want any part of him. With the Olympic Games coming up, however, a spirit of glasnost exists in post-Soviet Russia, which is trying to field its first so Olympic baseball team. Sparky reluctantly accepts the offer to move to Moscow and coach these players, many of whom don't even know the game's fundamentals. The players are predictably inept at first, but Sparky begins to learn the real joy in baseball is in the effort and the camaraderie. An exhibition game is ultimately arranged in which Sparky and his young, eager Russians get to play against his old team, the Mariners. Sparky also falls in love with a young Russian girl named Tanya Belova. My God, this is just Mr. Baseball, but set in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing about this. is the, It's the most interesting thing that happened to the Seattle Mariners prior to Ken Griffey Jr. Well, this would have been right around the time Griffey was coming up with the team, too. Yeah, that's true. And they did throw the Mariners were in naked gun because Major League Baseball told the Zucker brothers, you've got to take them because they need publicity. <laughs> that's true. That's not a joke. That is why the Mariners are in the naked gun. Uh, it still bothers me that they play the Angels at Dodger Stadium, but I digress. Well, that's because the Dodgers um, did not want to take part because there's a brawl and they felt it would hurt their brand or uh, it sounded like some kind of corporate BS, but <laughs> that's the story that they're sticking to. So, so you've got a Mariners angels game in Dodger stadium. So this would be the unfortunate part about that is the movie was uh, debuted in the middle of 1992, which the Soviet union was dissolved in December of 1991. So I don't know if it was filmed while there was still a Soviet union the page here basically does the whole, okay, um, they're trying to make it in post-Soviet Russia, in which case, how are they still the Soviet Union and not just Russia? 
They are wearing the traditional red CCCP uniforms, however. You got to give it up for that. Oh my God, that's so badass. I studied abroad in uh, Berlin in 2006, and I I bought one of those shirts, and I actually had um, at my gym, there was a spin instructor who used to always have a Rocky theme for her. Well, not always, but once in a while she'd do like a Rocky theme for her class. So she was like, you've got to wear that CCP shirt. And I was like, wow, I had no idea this would like come in handy in 2010 America. It's interesting because that would be the most unfair thing to do is pitting a completely inept Soviet baseball team against Ken Griffey Jr. <laughs> in, his early, in his early days. I love this promo poster for that movie. I, You've got one dude in the middle there with the Raleigh Fingers mustache. Um, that's a sweet warm-up jacket Joe Montana's wearing. Well, um, here's the good news for our listeners. When I put this up, uh, I will include the video. The entire movie is available on YouTube right now. Which tells you everything you need to know. You don't have to pay for it on Netflix or anywhere else that it's free. I've, I've got it kind of scanning in the background. The shortstop looks like Latimer from <laughs> from the program. Oh my god, yes! Which, I'm glad you made a program reference in the same week that Christy Swanson subtweeted me. <laughs> Everybody was like, oh my god, second-rate Buffy came at you and told her. I'm like, no, she's not second-rate Buffy. She's she's Joe Kane's girlfriend in the program. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not Latimer. Wow, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. Wasn't that guy in um, the John Singleton movie that was set in college that kind of had, because Christy Swanson was in that too, Omar Epps was in it, and I think Latimer was in it. You had like a lot of, you had basically, you had four or five people. It was like kind of the same cast. Oh, I, I'm not sure. Was it was it a football movie or what? No, it was called Higher Learning. Oh, okay. Oh, there we go. So what about the what about the actual team here? Uh, we do have some information on what happened with the actual team itself. Uh, there's an article here from Russia Beyond. Or they have some pretty good uh, stuff going back there. They wanted to be the as it says here the nail in the capitalism's co- in coffin. The final nail in capitalism's coffin. Must crush capitalism. <laughs> You we've got all of our the Simpsons are like half of our uh, like half of our material is coming from Simpsons episodes tonight. I've got to say that so these uh, these Soviet Union uniforms are pretty damn tight, honestly. Well, this dude is wearing a Cubs hat. Oh wow! Um, Andre Artamanov's personal archive. Uh huh. Like that, he's got a Cubs hat, and then I can't. MXM on the jersey. I don't know what that is. So the the team came to fruition in 1987. Uh, was quickly formed with men from all backgrounds, from hockey to javelin. The only criteria was their physical fitness. Many players uh, uh, had no experience whatsoever in the game, and they lost their first game 22 to nothing. Which was not how you want to get started when you're you want to lead with strength. You know, get and off that, in the that right. That was to play. a team from Nicaragua. But, you know, it's really interesting to see how they really did. The Soviet Union, you got to give them credit for this. They they formed a hockey team 
and then they beat Canada, and then they became a world power, and eventually they beat the United States in basketball. So they really did. That was their mission to go against the decadent West and those capitalist pigs and beat them at their own game, and and they did. And the common theme I'm seeing here, and from what the documentaries about the Russian hockey team and the Soviet, like the 30 for 30 about the Soviet team, about how they lived for the sport. They did not drink. They did not smoke. They trained nonstop. Like, that was dedication. Yeah, and it says here in the Russia Beyond story that by 89, they wanted to challenge the U.S. Uh, they they got their official uniforms and everything, and then they almost didn't get to travel because they needed a representative of the, the Communist Youth Union to travel with them, and the Communist Youth Union was like, um, we don't have a guy for baseball. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true. They were playing on soccer fields because I think by, by 1989, like, Russia had all of one or two baseball fields. Uh, so I'm looking here and trying to see what they did. They end up in Florida in 1989 and they actually win a couple of games. Uh, looks like obviously they didn't play the U S national team or anything, but they played some teams here in the U S won a couple of games and then they end up getting invited to the white house by Ronald Reagan. Yeah, that was really, really cool. I was kind of surprised to see that. Tear down this wall. Tear down this baseball fence, Mr. Gorbachev. (laughs) There's some really good pictures here of this team in 89, including some... Got to pour out some liquor here for Les Expos and our favorite Les Stade Olympique. There's lots of uh, Montreal Expos hats there. Oh, and all the Dodgers hats, too. Oh, yes. Yeah, the Expos. I mean, we've got to give props to them. I mean, the big O. And... <laughs> no, I, it was pretty cool to learn about how during this whole baseball summit that uh, Peter Angelo, the Dodgers owner, they really liked the baseball cards. And I'm with you on that because at that age and that time, I would have been all about it. Like, you gave me a 1989 upper deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card then. Oh, I don't know what I would have given you in return, but just about anything. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and some more fun stuff here from the Los Angeles Times article. Castro was on board with uh, teaching the Soviets, uh, with wanting to teach the Soviets to uh, beat the U.S., but like you said, didn't want him to beat Cuba. Yeah, well, how did that work out for your Fidel? <laughs> uh, it says it was usually played in the Republic of Georgia in the southern part of the country. And uh, usually only on soccer fields with makeshift equipment. So not quite your Dominican Republic playing with a milk carton and a wadded up ball of tape, but uh, still pretty bad. Yeah, it says that they wanted to learn baseball theory from the Cubans and the Nicaraguans. And I'm not sure what they mean by baseball theory, but um, International Baseball Association... The amateur stops with $20,000 worth of new equipment in the last year. Rawlings donated 80000 worth of base. So eventually the corporations came along and did give them some supplies. Yeah, and uh, probably I'm betting that with baseball theory, it's another area where we have to pour out liquor here. It was probably getting used to playing with or without a DH, which unfortunately tonight they announced 
that with the return of Major League Baseball, the designated hitter will now be used in the National League, and that is just entirely unfortunate. Yeah, man, and I, I'm glad I'm with you tonight for this, because I know how much this hurts for you. <laughs> this deprives us of one of the greatest, a, a chance of the, the greatest moment in baseball history, which is Bartolo Colon's home run. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing quite like American League pitchers batting. Oh, he was with the Mets at the time, so he was regularly batting. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kerry Wood was a great hitter, though. I, I did enjoy watching him bat. They homered in Game 7 of the 2003 NLCS, and the Cubs were still screwed and blew that game. And they did take a lead. Everybody thinks that the NLCS ended with Bartman, but no, there was a Game 7, and the Cubs were winning that Game 7 at one point. Behind a Kerry Wood home run, and I believe Mark Pryor was a pretty good hitter as well. Yeah, he was pretty good. He he was he was not bad. Uh, Glendon Rush was a phenomenal hitter. Oh yeah. Oh my. So what else do we have on the glorious Soviet baseball team? Well, I would think that when you put this post up, the lead is going to be the Comrades of Summer. Oh, absolutely, it's going to be the Comrades of Summer. And I, th- I think it was interesting to find that a lot of these games were played on soccer fields, and there's something called Bandy, which was like an, a similar soccer game. Um, like ice hockey, and my understanding of Bandy is like it's ice hockey on a soccer-sized field outdoors. Right, and you already touched on this earlier, but the Javelin athletes were brought in for their pitching arms. Um, from what I have read, Tennis players were brought in for the idea of hand-eye coordination with swinging a stick at a ball. And um, I thought it was interesting that a KGB officer was mandatory for every Soviet sporting event. Well, of course. And um, given that you have a former KGB officer ruling over us right now in Vladimir Putin, I guess things have not changed. <laughs> I thought it was funny that this great uh, exchange of ideas, the summit of uh, baseball occurred in Stockholm, the same city where Putin and Trump met a couple of years ago. So, you know, uh, that that is the thing about history. As Mark Twain once said, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. And uh, they, the Soviets and then obviously their... Uh, you know, the country that they became with most of it going to Russia now has actually been quite successful. There is still a Russian national baseball team that competes in the European championships and has even qualified for the baseball world cup, uh, which was the predecessor to what, what is it? The world championship of baseball, world baseball classic, world baseball classic. Yes. They uh, qualified for the baseball world cup in 1998, 2001 and 2003 and in 2001, they finished second in the European Baseball Championships out of 12 teams. Quite impressive for them. Yeah, I mean, they've come a long way. They've really picked it up, and it kind of goes to what I was saying earlier about basketball and hockey, that once they put their minds to it, they really excelled. At that 2001 European Baseball Championship, former re, former Soviet Republic Ukraine also qualified and finished 11th. And then the most recent European Championships did not feature Russia. However, uh, looks like 
there are no former Soviet republics there, but a couple that they had a strong influence in with, like, the Czech Republic and such uh, qualified. So, obviously, baseball not as big in Europe as it is here, but it is interesting to see that they've still done pretty well and were qualified for the European Championships as recently as 2016. And Japan is at a major influence as well. I mean, when you kind of think of baseball outside the U.S., Japan comes to mind, and we've already talked about the Cuban influence, the Nicaraguan influence in Russia and the Soviet Union, but Japan was a major part of that. And, you know, it, it's good to see that, you know, in in 84, there was the Olympic boycott. Um 1980 was the other boycott, right? Yes, that was the the Western nations boycotting the Moscow Olympics. And then in 84, the Russians. And now we're all coming together and we're seeing that they're really succeeding. And there was, I've, I've had conversations with people way more intelligent and way more educated than I am. We've said typically sports and the military is ahead of the rest of civilization when it comes to integration and moving society along. I mean, the, you know, the last time I had this conversation, it was more about um, racial equality, but you could say the same thing about cultural and, and, you know, bringing nations together. And I think this is a good example of that. Oh, absolutely. Because what, especially at the time for most of the cold war, what was the, big big thing was baseball in america obviously you have the golden era before world war ii but it has it is america's pastime as it's been called for over a century and everything so what better way to try and get into to integrate yourself with american culture or at least learn something than learn the game that is so popular and obviously we don't know about like soviet or russian football but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, so much has been said about the miracle on ice in 1980, and that's been done. But, I mean, that that was totally different in which Russia was the big Goliath and we were David. And now maybe we'll start a show where people talk about Soviet Union baseball. <laughs> so I was unable to find if they ever did actually play, like, the U.S. national team. But I know the U.S. national team, when it comes to baseball, has always been kind of, there isn't yeah. a lot of history there. It's like, okay, who's in it, who's not? You don't have professional players playing, except for, like, the World Baseball Classic. And it, it, a lot like uh, the top European nations in soccer, they don't want the top guys going and spending a lot of time with the national team because they have all the money invested in them with the clubs. Right. Like you would think on paper that the U S would dominate that, but it's so strange to me because like Mike Piazza is playing for Italy because he's an Italian American and you've got, I, I just don't know. I don't understand how it really works. It doesn't seem, it's not like back in the day where you'd get the 1985 tops Mark McGuire baseball called, baseball card when he was on team usa and it was amateurs only i mean the olympics have totally changed everything that i found in doing research for this was that as soon as the soviet union collapsed then this whole rivalry ended and of course it would that's only natural because that was the goal all along was for the little upstart to come and knock you know those yankee capitalist pigs off their perch but and that's kind of and that's why you know this movie that we discussed flopped 
That's why we talked about when they went to the White House, the, the interest dissipated because there was no more Soviet Union and the rivalry just kind of ended right there. And the, and you also had the stakes of, okay, uh, there's at least a 5% chance that a nuclear war will start if something really goes bad in these matchups. So well, Yeah, what's the threat of nuclear war was over? It's like, I guess it's not as interesting now. Well... I mean, no, no, we did. I, I'm sure you read that article where, where whoever wrote that. This is I don't know. Either it's really bad, but then again, it's really good because I'm referencing the sentence was: "Is the U.S. and Russia de-escalated the arms race? They built up an arms race in baseball." <laughs> like, stop! You did not do that. You did not say that. Well, I mentioned. Uh, I mentioned. Soviet football, as in you know American football, not metric football, and I got I got curious here to see if they've embraced that game even a little bit, and it turns out there actually is a Russian American football championship, and a lot like the NFL, it is dominated by the Patriots. <laughs> Get out of here! Are you serious? The Moscow Patriots have won the Russian American football championship fifteen times, and it has been. Uh, it has been founded a couple of times. The It was originally started in 1991, restarted in 2002, and restarted again in 2016. But they've got some great names here. They have the Moscow Patriots, the most successful team, the Moscow Bruins, the Moscow Swans, the Moscow Tanks. I'm sensing a pattern here. Uh, the Moscow yeah. Red Falcons, the Moscow Black Storm. And then you get out of Moscow, you have the St. Petersburg Griffins, the Krasnoyarsk Siberian Devils, which is fantastic. <laughs> the Aktau Caspian Sphinxes, the Kharkov Atlants, and uh, the Perm Steel Tigers. Which I'm very disappointed to see that there is not a Magnitogorsk team. <laughs> All I really know is like Siska Moscow and FC Rostov, but that's metric football and that's football football. Like I, I'm shocked to hear that there's American football and I good for Moscow. That's like London having nine Premier League teams that Moscow has. Well, when your country's spread across 11 time zones, I mean, how do, how would you even have regular competition between, like, Moscow and Vladivostok? Yeah, I was going to say, you only, you've got, like, St. Petersburg, Vladivostok, Odessa, Moscow, and I've already run out of Russian cities that I know. Oh, goodness, there is actually an Eastern European Super League with teams in Minsk, Perm, St. Petersburg, and of course the Moscow Patriots, Spartans, and Dragons. I've got to look this up, but the Moscow Patriots, that is really funny. Yep, 15 championships in the history of uh, Soviet slash Russian football. So even when you go to Russia, you can't get rid of the, pa get rid of the pa Patriots. I don't know if their quarterback is Tom Brady Ski or what. Oh my God, look at their logo. Yeah, that's a badass logo, isn't it? Yeah, it has, like, the flying Elvis tail thing, just like the Patriots. And, and it's basically like a fist gripping a flame. It's Yeah, it, that's the perfect way to explain it. But and It's a perfect tribute to the Great Patriotic War, because it's not World War II over there, it's the Great Patriotic War. <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to Eastern Europe's favorite cat-and-mouse team, Worker and Parasite. <laughs> 
So now that we have discussed the last century of geopolitics in Eastern Europe, uh, which a subject that we are clearly supremely educated in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is definitely going to be a podcast that no one will be dumbed down at all from listening to this. <laughs> So that, that's pretty much all that we have on Soviet baseball, just as kind of a little oddity there when it comes to sports. It, it's hard to believe that it rose and fell in a span of about six or seven years there where, like you said, they're trying to become this Olympic power and then the country falls apart and then that's it. That's, that's right. And, and no one cared on either end after that point. But we, get it, but we got we had some laughs and we had a great Joe Montana movie out of it. I'm definitely going to screen that after this for sure. <laughs> so what do we have, as we like to say at the end of these podcasts, is do we have any idea of our next topic? I know we kind of stumbled across this one about a week and a half ago, but do we have any idea what we want to talk about on our next one to tease? Well, we've done a lot of baseball recently, so I, I think our next one is, is going to be college football. Oh, but, college football, yes. Um, but sorry, I don't have the topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be nice if it was college football as in actual college football to watch. No, I mean the thing is, like now that we're getting into July, I mean I know you don't come to you don't come down to Chicago for Big Ten media days, and you're certainly not missing anything by not coming to that. But um, this is kind of the year where you start. This is the time of the year where you start to think about that. So well, today you know, we hit. It, Today we hit 74 days to kick off, and I've got to be honest, I'm I'm becoming more and more negative each day that it will happen. At first I was thinking it was going to happen just because there's so much money involved and that we would get to see it in some form, but with all these spikes in infections going on and then you start to see some of these programs that have already had the voluntary workouts back on campus and then they're seeing a rise in the the virus spreading through i i'm really beginning to have my doubts that we will see college football in the fall um and who knows i mean yes there's a lot of money at stake but at some point you have to make a decent decision and i also think that there is a strong possibility that you're going to have some of these teams band together and be like no we're not going to risk this we're not going to basically play for the entertainment value where we don't get anything other any value out of it any monetary value right i mean um on friday there was a massive juneteenth rally at notre dame and i was looking through the videos and photos and it reminded me of dollop that you you were in attendance right in indianapolis yes i was that was that right. was a really and good it, one that was a really, really good one about the time uh, Notre Dame drove out the KKK at, in 1924. And I'm like, that's really interesting. And there was a commenter saying, like, what if this is the extent of our discussion of Notre Dame football in 2020? Like, this is what comes for a season. And I, it really kind of hit me that when you have an independent and you're not dealing with conferences and other affiliates like Notre Dame, if they wanted to, would really and it, it won't actually that doesn't even matter because these other schools that they're scheduling on could also drop out and you know they sent out something about a media availability with the navy at coach because that game had already been moved from dublin to annapolis and i just i just don't see it happening i just don't i i could really see that once you get into the politics of which states open up on which schedule and who's open on that and which conference and 
I, I just don't see it. it. seems like it's it's harder because with pro football, there's a union and there's collective bargaining and you all kind of come together on certain agreement. But with colleges, it's there's no centralized authority. And I, I just don't I just don't see it happening. I I'm, I give it maybe a 30 percent chance. And that's trying to be that's trying to be optimistic right now. And the la- the last thing that we need is to be more negative in, you know, these uncertain times. <laughs> but it, it really is, it, it just seems unlikely. And, you know, I'm going to move forward until there's actually word one way or the other that we're playing or we're not playing. But I don't know. It, it just seems like there's too much going on to really think that we're going to be business as usual by Labor Day weekend. Well, Brian Kelly said it best back in April. I think it was April. It was it was a while ago. It was certainly a few weeks ago. He said, if your business is usual on July 1, then your season starts on time. If you're not business as usual on July 1, then it gets delayed. And today is June 23rd, and we're certainly not business as usual. So. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, and, I don't know. Maybe we should do Mike Gundy for the next one. Well, I did have my Gundy mitzvah in October, so. Because, I mean, he's pretty weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's go into some OAN and really get into that. That'll be really good. Yeah, <laughs> never mind. I checked that. That's a bad idea. So I'm trying to find one last thing here because uh, I did get curious and was researching it here as you were talking. <clears throat> there is a possibility, <clears throat> excuse me, that. The United States and the Soviet Union did play in baseball at the 1990 Goodwill Games in Seattle. Sweet. Which was a, it was kind of a faux Olympics started by Ted Turner. (laughs) Which, of course, was, he had broadcasting rights to do on TBS. Uh, But both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in the game, and the U.S. was coached by University of Miami head coach Jim Morris, actually. At these wow. at, at the uh, Goodwill Games, and it's two-time national champion Jim Morris. So, Mrs. T is very happy there. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Mitch, what's up? In, in the semifinals, Cuba beat Team USA sixteen to two. So there wasn't much of a chance for him to lay down many bunts. Bunting is very underrated. Uh, Jim Morris, when he was coached the University of Miami, he never met a bunt he didn't like. Every player was drilled to bunt under any circumstance whatsoever, including, like, power hitters, if they needed to move a runner, a runner over. Well, you got you to gotta like that he stayed committed to the bit. <laughs> you got to respect that he found his lane, and he drove in that lane the way that you should. Yeah, oh, I did find it. They did play. So if you've hung with us this long, I'm glad that you guys can uh, get this nice little tidbit here. Uh, from the baseball at the 1990 Goodwill Games, the United States did beat the Soviet Union 17 to nothing. So take that, you commie bastards. <laughs> USA! 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 Don't tread on me, comrade. Oh my wow. God. There you go. I mean, is this not a feel-good story? 
I mean, by the time you get this up, we'll be almost in 4th of July. There's probably fireworks being shot off somewhere in this city right now as we record this. <laughs> so, yes, how American is that? We exported our game, we sent it out to the world, and when somebody tried to come in to our house and make it better, we kicked their asses. <laughs> America, you don't like it, you can get out, boy. See, that's the problem. They couldn't get any outs. They gave up 17 runs. Who was on that team? 1990? Uh, man. Oh, I had the rosters here for a moment. Oh, goodness. Um, here we go. I, fa I found the roster for the United States. Um, Jim Morris was the manager. We had Darren Bragg, Scott Hatterberg, Paul Bird, Jorge Fabregas. Oh, okay. Uh, Joey Hamilton, and... Uh, Pookie Wilson, not Mookie, Pookie Wilson. Pookie Wilson. <laughs> that played... sounds like Mr. Burns, where he's like, bring me, he's like, give me Steven Spielberg. He can't, well, bring me his his Mexican non-union equivalent. So Pookie Wilson playing for the Salt Lake City Trappers and then was in the Marlins organization from 93 to 97. So I learned something today. Oh, Aaron Seeley would be another major leaguer here. So there were a couple future major leaguers. On that team. Yeah, I remember Aaron Seeley vividly. So, I mean, if you had two or three major leaguers, that'd be enough to beat the Soviet Union team. Oh, but Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, but, yeah. I don't know. Maybe we should do, like, maybe we should do the Montreal Expos for our next one. Absolutely. I, f I feel bad. I always feel bad for the Expos fans. And I know that they've talked about restarting the Expos if Major League Baseball ever expands to 32 teams. But, yeah, that, that would be a good topic. Because they were going to have it where, um, weren't the Rays going to play their summer games in Montreal? They were talking about playing some of them, yes. And at Le Stade Olympique, which still exists. Very big for rodeos and craft shows now. <laughs> and monster truck rallies. <laughs> well, I, I think, think we can wrap it. It. I think that's their topic. I forget college football. I think we're going to do... The mon I think we'll just do, like, Montreal baseball. There we go. So I think on that we can do one more suck it, you commie bastards. That's right. We beat you 17 nothing, and then your ass quit as a country after that. So that's how we won the Cold War. Yeah, you know what? For all of our listeners in Russia who are stuck in 1988, I want to say suck it. <laughs> if you're that's listening to this time warp... Be like, yeah, so red, on, white, and blue, boot up your ass. Take it. So on that note, I think we will call it a day on this. So we thank you for listening. We hope to actually have some new sports content before too long. As always, stay safe out there. Wear your damn mask. It's not that hard, people. It's really not that bloody hard. Wear your damn mask. Yeah, and stay six feet apart, man. Yes. You know, you know what? I've seen friends, and I I give them a little tap with the foot. You do a little elbow bump. That's all good. Yeah, it's it's, it's not that hard. <laughs> so for that, uh, for Paul and myself, we thank you for listening, and uh, stay safe out there, and always stay weird.